This episode is powered by denmeditation.com. The meditation is the primary focus. The bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal, your host and the founder of Den Meditation. We have Laura Day again. Um, she's amazing. She is a psychic. She has been on CNN, Fox News, Good Morning America, The View, Extra, and Oprah. I mean, she's been everywhere. She's been written up in every magazine, every newspaper. She's huge. She works for companies. When companies want a crystal ball, this is who they go to. She has helped solve um, missing children's cases. And she also works for individuals too, but now she mostly teaches people how to harness their own intuition. She's fascinating. We really get into how to work with your intuition, how the inside vibration has to match what you are pitching out there. And one of the things I love about her is she's very practical. So it is about data points. It is about how to actually create action in your physical body. You can't just be floating up there in the stars to actually make things happen. She actually refers, you know, to spirituality as a big blob. Like if you just tap into the, you know, spiritual energy, then it's just a blob, but you're a person, you're an individual. How do you individually make things happen in your life that you need and you want? And so it's amazing. It's a very, she's just also just so much fun to listen to. Um, if you want a really deep conversation kind of about how her childhood was, because we hint on it and we touch on it today, go to episode 78, her first episode with us. Um, we really get into more of her personal stuff. This, we talk a lot about intuition. We tap into the personal stuff towards the end as well. She's fantastic. Her personal practice is great. And once again, very practical, something we all need and can do. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I hope you are just inspired to remember how powerful you are, because I think that's what Laura does for me and hopefully for you as well. You know, I was going to tell people, anyone, you know, Laura's amazing and we've had her on before. If anyone wants some of her like true personal history and stuff like that, go to episode 78 because we went in pretty deep when I had you on a couple of years ago. Um, so anyone wants who even more, it's episode 78 of Den Talks, which is incredible. How have you been? I mean, you rode the I, pandemic out beautifully well, I feel like. Well, you know, I was so both my husband and I were really fortunate during the pandemic because we work from home. We were in London. We live at home. We work from home. We, you know, we, we, my husband's a screenwriter. I'm, you know, we, we know what I am. <laughs> we don't say it in polite company, but, um, and, and it was great because if for me, I mean, although my heart broke for the people who were going through all the difficulty, I felt useful. I we I started going mm. on and I still do it. I started going on live every morning in my pajamas uh, from my sunroom in London. We did a big pool of like money and resources so people could come on and say, I don't have diapers or I don't have medicine. And we did that all through the pandemic. So I really felt like like I was, um, I was useful. And I think that was the hardest part of the pandemic for people. I mean, other than obviously the loss of, of life um, was that people didn't feel useful. They didn't have, they didn't have the normal structures where they could engage. So 
it was it it was amazing. And then we moved back to New York also during the pandemic. I have some photos of everything my husband made me wear on the plane, shield and mask and a zipper <laughs> up antibacterial suit and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, we despite his hypochondriasis, we got back <laughs> to New York. And I've continued going on Instagram Live every morning or every evening once a day. And this group is amazing. They stay at each other's houses. They vacation together. They promote each other's work. I mean, they really, it's, you know, it's about all told when everyone's in, it's about 25,000 people. And they're, they're amazing. And you really, I, we really uh, see that when you put people together and you say, okay, we're all here to help each other. Generosity is incredible. And it's so funny that you feel like you said it was nice to feel useful because I feel like <clears throat> with what you do, whether it's one-on-one -on -one as a psychic, whether you're working for a company, whatever it is you do, or just giving people tools for themselves, you are always so useful. But it's interesting that it was something about the tangibility of something. So talk about that a little bit. Well, it was also, I was, you know, what I do, really what I do for work is I predict the future for the same companies I've worked for for 30 years. With my students, when I train them as intuitives or as healers, I also feel useful. I'm uncovering a skill for them and I'm giving them a livelihood because I don't take private clients. So anybody who reaches out to me just gets channeled to my students. Um, and I read my students and I'm very overly involved in all of their lives and considering how many <laughs> they are, it is really, you know, my students are my life and my my extended uh, my extended family. Um, I think in many ways, the intuitives that I've trained felt powerless during the pandemic because, mm. you know, a lot of people go to readings to be reassured and not to gain tools to change things. And it wasn't a reassuring time. Um, so I think many of my students who are now professionals actually felt very challenged, but our our mottos during the pandemic, and they have persisted today, is look for the can-do in a situation. There's always plenty you can't do, but look for the can-do. And, and those who use the pandemic to educate themselves online, to plan, to find resources, public resources that they didn't know uh, were available. You know, those who used that time for a can-do dealt with the problems because of course, listen, for anybody, problems are always significant, but dealt with the problems and looked for the, the potentiality in it now are doing better than they would have ever done without the pandemic. Not without blood, sweat and tears, but you right. know, better than they've ever done. And, and our other motto was you are not alone because mm, so you know, what, one of the things that you realize is that for intuition to work, we have to live in a unified field and there's enough you know, convincing research now uh, that intuition actually does allow us to communicate with each other over a distance or even with someone we don't know, does allow us to predict the future, does allow us to view or even inhabit a re remote location. And now that we have the instrumentation to actually measure how the brain responds, we can really see it's not anecdotal evidence anymore. We can actually see, oh yes, this person's brain is reacting to someone a thousand miles away being energetically in a room and not, mm -hmm. not even knowing it was happening. So we can now 
we can now um, see that. And during the pandemic, that was all so useful because people were at a distance from their loved ones. You couldn't be with your parent or child in a hospital. And so the, the ability to use these tools was even more useful um, and, and pronounced. So you are not alone was our other motto. Look for the can-do and the can you are do. not alone because if you are alone, you just need to move an inch to the side and you will find a whole community. You know, we tend to get stuck in patterns and so we don't find those communities, which is why groups are such, you know, unbelievably powerful things. How, you know, you said the intuition, you need community for intuition. Can you bridge that gap for me a little bit? In this yes, well, your intuition demonstrates that we are always in communication because one of the things, we're an evidence-based group. And what I mean by that is even though a lot of beliefs can be incredibly powerful, whether they're angels or past lives or spirit guides, we deal with what we only with what we can verify. So in their free time, I'm sure all my students are using angel cards, but in their work <laughs> time in our group, we work with only data that can at some point be verified. And we have a methodology for bringing out that data, for verifying it, or sometimes disproving it, and for working on our system. But in or if you can get a reaction from someone you've never met a thousand miles away who has no idea you're doing it, it really shows us that we're never alone. You're always in communication with your environment. And that has upsides and downsides. I mean, people put intuition synonymously with some kind of magical grace, and it's not. Good sociopaths, as I've said before on your show, are good intuitives. <laughs> it's really how you Probably engage great with intuitives. Them. Great and exactly how yeah. you engage with it and how you how you direct it. So a lot of you know intuitive training for a good life, the kind that I've done at the den in one day workshops, um, is really about okay. This is the part of intuition that's letting me feel everybody's depression and trauma and making me unable to get out of bed, even though I myself am not depressed. And this is the part of intuition that's alerting me to the details of opportunities that I can act on to create the life that I want. And there is, you know, we train our intellect and our emotions over in a lifetime, but intuition, which is so powerful and actually present in us as babies before we are intellectual or able to regulate emotionally, Intuition's just allowed to wreak havoc and run wild. And so, you know, you look at someone, um, I'm, I just posted in London a workshop on relationships, whether they're business or love, because you look at someone saying, well, I'm so nice to my partner. I don't understand why they're so reactive and suspicious. But meanwhile, your dialogue with them internally is accusing and nasty and critical they're hearing you and they're confused. There's a dissonance. Mm. Wherever there's a dissonance, something doesn't work. Talk about that a little bit more. That's interesting. So what you're saying is because we're all naturally intuitive, whether we're aware of it or not, sometimes you're right. hearing or picking up what the truth is that someone may not be expressing. So well, correct me if I'm wrong, what you meant by truth. like with the... Go ahead. It's I meant what someone might be... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the truth if someone's is... in a partnership... Go ahead. 
The truth is often, gee, I hate that you don't help me in the house. I hate that you're so stingy with money. You know, I hate that you are such a sloppy kisser, but I love everything else about you. And, and I want to work on these things because you're so magnificent. I mean, there, there is truth is very subjective, uh, correct right. and incorrect and data points isn't, which is why we love them. But truth used in that way is subjective. But yes, when you're, you know, you may be expressing to your child, everything's okay and experiencing, oh my God, what am I going to do? And that dissonance gets through. And really the work is, and let's use the example of a child because that's the most difficult, I think. The work is how do how can I be honest with my child in a way that isn't flooding, that is is a is age appropriate? So maybe, you know, uh not mommy and daddy are fine because they know that's not true, and then they don't trust anybody and it lets their it it it, it exacerbates whatever fear or acting out or bedwetting or aggression they may be having. But you know what? It is not an interesting relationship if people don't have conflicts. And mm. and the wonderful thing is daddy and I right now have some disagreements and we're really, really working hard on making things better because of them. Have you, do you have anyone you disagree with who you work? Remember when, remember when I didn't, uh, when I really didn't want you to buy that art set and you really wanted it and we disagreed and then we came to a really great arrangement and you bought another art set that you really love. That's what mommy and daddy are doing. So it's real. It's so important because then your child can put that in taken care of and focus on daily living, which is one reason, by the way, we don't develop intuition in children is we don't want them flooded. We want them forming good egos and adaptive personalities. So wait, so talk about that. Well, this is so interesting because I think so many of us, the kid is such a great example because it's obvious people have this natural inclination of like, how do I protect them? And sometimes by right. protecting them, like you said, you're creating a dissonance that they're actually picking up on and it's confusing the matter even more. But I think we all do this to some effect with relationships, boss, not, you know, employee, lover, best friend, this idea of like not wanting to hurt someone's feelings. But what I love what you're saying is this natural intuition we have picks up on the vibration nonetheless. Yes. And it's not always not, you know, not wanting to hurt someone's feelings is part of it. The other is not wanting to deal with it. Right. Not, yep. you know, it, the fact of the matter is the person you're living with defines in so many ways your reality. It is worth the trouble to work it out or walk out. I mean, it is worth the trouble to engage and to find adaptive ways to engage. What we don't realize is that in our inner dialogue, we also have to find those adaptive ways to engage. So, I mean, I'm married to a very traditional man. Uh, 15 years before I met him, uh, one of my students described him perfectly. And one of the things she said is a Colorado cowboy, macho. I am married, <laughs> you know, this product of the 60s is married to the, a macho man. And if he weren't married to a psychic, no one would ever know what he's feeling or thinking. And <laughs> that has been 
an issue because I will have a whole, not because I'm a psychic, because I'm a human. I'll have a whole argument with him sitting in front of him without him ever saying a word. I do both sides and it's not, it's not Same. great. And so, so what I've learned to do, because if I say, you know what, you know, you're not sharing with me, I'm speaking like every other person who's criticized him in his life. When I say, you know what, I love you and I'm so interested in how you feel about this. I may not, you know, respond the way you want. You may be worried that I'm going to be angry, but I really want to know you better. And it has slowly, I've been married 12 years and this is still a work in progress, slowly it's created a dynamic that not where not only does he share more with me, but he's actually aware of it in the first place because hmm. I've asked him to share it with me. And so our, you know, the typical thing that happens in, in our home is like, I don't know, one of the kids will do something nasty to him. He'll be just so nice about it. And I'll blow up at him. And uh, he is experiencing the distress, but he doesn't, he doesn't metabolize it. I experience it as we all do, not because again, I'm an intuitive and I have the reaction. And what I've learned to do is to notice when I'm doing that and say, you know what? Wow, that must've been really, you know, hurtful. And I'll say, oh, no, 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 it's fine. I expect it. And I'll, I'll say, you know what? I don't think so because I'm feeling this way. So let's have a glass of wine and talk about it. Um, unfortunately, he holds his liquor much better than I do. So two ounces <laughs> in, I'm, you know, but, but anyway, it's, you know, the, the secondary agendas, the subtext, those are real conversations and they need to be, they need to be had. Just like if you're doing something you want to get away with, you need to internally frame it in a way that someone else won't get on to you. I mean, one of the most helpful things I think with my students <coughs> is that um, is that they realize that it doesn't mean they have to be 100% honest all the time. It means they have to work inside of themselves to find a position where what they're doing and what they're saying appears the same. And that takes a lot of reframing, you know, redescribing. And often, and again, this is what communities are so good for, often it's helpful to, um, to have a, a group of people that you can say, my boss is an ass, I really hate him, but I want him to promote me and I want to be indispensable because this is the, these are the best benefits I've ever had. What's your sense? And uh, the person will say, you know what, what you're really reacting to is this person is someone who, 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 you know, really just kind of doesn't consider the, the contributions of others, but they work really hard. They don't consider their own either. And so if you, if you held that reality, maybe how you deal with your boss would shift. And so you do. And without even having to think of how am I going to change all of a sudden you're shifting. And that's the wonderful thing about intuition is intuition is a survival skill. So, I mean, have you ever been mid argument and you realize you are just being a bitch? You yes, actually a thousand are completely percent. wrong. 
and you keep yeah. arguing. But I've gotten a little better. I've gotten a little better at being like, okay, time to just backtrack. Right, right. And 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 I've I've learned how to apologize. Like often mm-hmm. I'll make it up to people, but I've learned how to just say, wow. I'm sorry, I was wrong. That was out of line. And I should not have spoken to you that way. Please. And it's amazing how much easier that is than sending flowers and offering to clean their closet. So much easier. Offering to clean um, their closet. And, but once, once you're aware of something, you begin to make adjustments. You, not just intellectually, rarely emotionally, because emotions are so reactive, but intuitively. You begin to find other ways you can do uh, the same thing. Talk and a little bit. Economically. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about this kind of aligning of the out and the in and how important it is. Um, Cause you keep saying like changing this internal dialogue, like expand on that a little bit more. Cause I think it's the root of almost everything. So I feel okay. like if all Let of us realized, on- yeah, go ahead. Let me work on our number one, I think, especially as women, terror and anxiety. Now, terror and anxiety are rarely based in the present, because in the present, if we're, if we're mindful, we're engaged, and intuition is leading us to what we can do if we're mindfully, positively engaged. However, what happens often is that we either imagine something's going to happen, or we intuit something that we may not be ready for now, but we'll probably be ready for when we get there. And we, we, um, and, and I mean, this is especially true of people who lean toward intuition because the precognition floods as opposed to being filtered by our intellect and our ego and our defenses. So, what happens? You are worried someone's going to leave you. You, you, because you haven't been intuitively trained, you don't realize, A, you're seeing 40 years in the future where you're going to be with someone really hot and your kids will be raised and it'll have been wonderful and you're glad they're leaving because it keeps you from having to make that decision. But none of that comes in because you're not using your intuition. All you have, because let's say you were left as a child, is this terror. Now, The intuitive way to reframe that is this may be real, this may be a fear, but either way, it's something that I need to deal with now because it's upsetting me now. How do I deal with this? Okay, what are my fears around being left? Um, Heartbreak. Okay, I think I need to make myself more resilient because the effort to control other is always a waste of energy, unless they're a kid. Um, And even then you gotta negotiate. So, okay, I'm worried about my livelihood. I'm gonna go back to school. Um, What else am I worried about? I'm worried about disappearing in my social community. Okay, I'm gonna put some efforts in finding communities now that support me now that I enjoy. I'm worried my kids will hate me. Okay, well, what can I do? And intuition, especially, and remind me to tell you about sleep work. Intuition will help you come up with methodologies for communication where, where difficulties don't become barriers, they become conversation points. 
Um, you know, uh, so you deal with the future in the present. You don't assume that you're correct, but the issues they bring up are valid issues, whether or not your precognition, your future telling was correct. Um, and, you know, there's, there are, um, uh, you know, there are times intuition is not subtle uh, and it's not repetitive. If you are going to die in a fiery crash, I guarantee that your intuition isn't going to alert you until three days before the crash and you'll make different arrangements. Um, I, I, I don't like being out of control. I'm going to tell you a little story. I don't like Please. being out of control. So I hate things like planes and boats, things I don't drive, <laughs> I don't like. Um, uh, you know, even mobile sidewalks, don't love them. So I, I always was anxious before taking flights, but I'm also very cheap. So I book my flights months in advance. <laughs> so, um, uh, although I like to think of myself as conservative rather than cheap, but, um, so one day, and I think this is back in the 1980s when we had paper tickets, changing a flight was a big deal. Oh yeah. One day I wake up the day before I'm supposed to leave. And I think I'm, I'm too afraid to get on that plane. I'm just, I'm not comfortable getting on that plane. And I lost, you know, back in the eighties, a plane ticket to Italy costs the same as it does now, basically even more. Sometimes I, I lost a huge uh, chunk of fare changing the ticket to two days later for two days, just because for once out of the probably 50 times I would traveled to Italy and hundreds of times on a plane, I was too uncomfortable. That the morning that I was supposed to arrive in Italy, there was a mass shooting at Rome airport. Mm -hmm. So intuition is not going to say, oh, this person's going to leave or you're going to die in a fiery crash or it's not it, because what are you going to do about it? Intuition gives you actionable things. And that's the people, the biggest question I get is how do you differentiate between fear and intuition? Intuition yep. says, do this. It doesn't even sometimes tell you why do this. And here's how to do it with the least loss possible. It doesn't, it doesn't give you, if, if, if a boulder is going to fall on you, in a hundredth of a second, it's not going to let you know it. It's going to let you die happy because we repress what it is we can't manage. That's, that's what our ego does for us. Um, and that's so what that our brain effect, does. So to that Pardon? effect, when you said, you, to that effect, when you said like, I am, you know, I get nervous. I, I don't like being out of control. I don't like to fly. I don't like that stuff. Talk about for someone, let's say, who has anxiety for flying, how do they differentiate that idea of every time the idea of flying puts a pit in their stomach versus something here needs to change? So first of all, you, you, you set a goal and your goal is to stay safe, not even to fly comfortably, to stay safe. Once you have that goal, you can assume that you will be alerted when you're not safe. But you bring in some logic. Let's say you've flown 20 times. Nothing has ever happened and you have been equally afraid each time. You know you're dealing with pathology and not prediction. 
And I really treat, you know, it's especially hard for somebody like me because most of the time I am right, although not all of the time. And the person I'm least right about, like everybody else, Probably is you. myself. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, I, I have my own twists and turns, probably a little more than most. Um, and so I do a lot of reality testing. Actually, reality testing is a great intuitive exercise. Um, and reality testing is really, okay, here's the reality. Less than X percent of planes go down. I have taken now hundreds of plane trips in my lifetime, and I am fine. Chances are I'm really off base here. And I do, you know, I do get on the plane, except that one time that I didn't. And actually, the plane was safe. The, the baggage claim wasn't. The, the shooting right. happened in the baggage claim. Um, you know, most of your fears really are just fears. Because intuition comes with a solution. I mean, I strongly felt that I needed to, to change my, my fare, even though there was a cost. Um, but that happens every blue moon, because most of the time, especially if your intuition is working for you, you are already taking, you're not booking the flight that would be dangerous. And often we say, oh, you know, why didn't my intuition tell me that I was going to divorce a man who kept me in a 10-year legal battle? Um, why? Because in that marriage, I grew up. I had a child. I had time to fall completely apart from a very devastating childhood and the support to do it. Because there were other things that were important. And that 10-year battle made me a New York Times bestselling author taught me that I had a skill I could charge a lot of money for, really made me autonomous in the world the way an easy solution would not have. And, you know, 2020 hindsight <laughs> is wonderful. But often when we look at why did we do this, we see why. And then the really important part is how do I not replicate it? So I replicated that with my next partner because I just wasn't self-aware at that age enough to say, oh, I seek battles because battles are how I change. And I wrote a book as a result called Welcome to Your Crisis. What's another way I could change that wouldn't cost me $2 million in 10 years of my life? Right. And That's intuition so... does give you that. But it's interesting because like you said, you had to go through it to get to that next point. Right. So it's like, and, it's like you, go ahead. No, no, no. And you know, one of the things that, that, um, that is wonderful about self-help, one of the reasons I love writing self-help is that if you give somebody a system to follow, to kind of a, a prosthetic operating system to overlay the one that's getting them in trouble and they try it out and they see results you can save them that pain. You know, in a way, uh, I think self-help authors are giving us an economy of life that brings a joy of life that's important. And the book that I am publishing next spring is all about the ego. You know, it is 
it is in a strange way an anti-spirituality book because it's about, hey, if, you're, if we're all one energy, then spirituality is regressive. It is your commercial break to reset. But here's the function of the ego and, and how it creates for you in the world. And here are ways to, to fix it, to renovate it, to direct it in a way that gets you the results you want. Because there's nothing more amazing than having a system where you do something and there is an assured result. Because then our, our creativity, our joy, our relaxation, our connection to one another in the world around us has the space to actually be actualized. So how do you, when you talk about the ego, it sounds like your hypothesis is more like instead of this idea of banishing this ego or pretending it doesn't exist, how can you get it to work with you and for you? Well, someone without, you know, an ego is anything that you can start with. I, I love, I champion, I care, I, I hate, I, anything with an I, without an ego, you're what I call the blob. You're just part of spirit. You're nothing. And, and e the rudiments of ego are even there at birth because we have that genetic framework that is the precursor to the ego. And then if we're lucky, we get poured into good caretakers who set good examples for ego foundation and encourage us to develop those skills on our own. Um, you know, ego, when someone says, oh, I have no ego, I say, well, it's incredible you're walking around. I have a good, you know, psychiatric hospital refer referral for you. Because, <laughs> with, you know, ego is the architecture through which we create businesses, love, relationships, buildings, interactions. Without ego, there's nothing in our material being or our material world that exists. And yet, when people, you know, I, I heard a phrase that I'm going to steal and reuse over and over again. No is a complete sentence. <laughs> I thought, you it's know, true. that is God speaking to me. No <laughs> is a complete sentence. Um, you know, when we speak about ego, we're really speaking about damaged ego when we use it in a dismissive way. Uh, because the ego, you know, if if you have... Uh, if your ego in its intellect is developed, you can build the world, you can foresee the world. And it's a, it's a hugely important thing. And of course, you can't tolerate having an ego because having an eye is really hard work. If you don't have practices like, I mean, I'm not a meditator, but my meditation is walking mindfulness because, you know, I have no idea what year it is or where I am in space-time unless I really focus on, oh, okay, Laura, your name is Laura. You're in a body. Your body needs to be fed. Um, you are in New York, this chair. Oh, yeah, let me experience. And your power is not in your forecasting or your telepathy or anything. Your power, all of those gifts work wonderfully if you're in your body in the present. And most of the time, we spend very little time there. I have a little thing I do on Instagram every once in a while, I repost it. And it's called time zones. The past, we spend a hell of a lot of time yeah. there. The future, also spending a hell of a lot of time there. The non-local, I wonder what they're doing. I wonder what he's doing. I wonder what's <laughs> happening there. 
we spend very little time where we have the power to take something and move it. And that yeah. that place is the present. And I see you do through Dan a lot of mindfulness and, you know, even things like sound meditations. I can never st stay still that long, but a sound meditation brings you, connects you to your environment through sound, finds that, that vibration within you. And all of the sudden you're mindful. And talk about the relationship with ego to that, like how you make sure that your ego is not so connected to all these projections that it allows you presence. Well, if you're if you are working on your I, if you're working on your ego, you know, um, then you you use that energy we all share that we think of as spirit, which I call the blob, because spirit does nothing unless it's channeled through a structure. It's just a right. blob of energy. It's wonderful, it has infinite potential, it has infinite knowing, but it can't do a hell of a lot, it's a blob. But when we channel that through the I, you know, I love, I enjoy, I wanna help, I wanna connect, I wanna put that in my mouth. You know, when you connect it through the eye, then you become the creator of reality. And I think that we need to really shift from saying ego is a bad thing because ego is everything in a material world to yeah. egos are things that they're machines. We're machines and we sustain damage and we notice damage by the parts of ourself that are painful or the parts of our life that aren't working. If you're not being adequately financially rewarded for what you're doing, you have an fourth ego center injury. And there are ways to deal with that. Forgiveness, generosity, uh, connection. Because at the what that means is that when you were born, whatever, intentionally or not intentionally, you never had the experience that you have a right to exist and to thrive. And so you, the great, the good news with ego work is that as an adult, you can fix that. In fact, right. only you can fix that. And when I say only you, only you and you in relationship, because we are, again, going back to the beginning, Community. one of the things about intuition, we are always in relationship. So the question is, who are you in relationship? I, I get a lot of um, requests, for example, for forwards to books and requests for help. And all of these people could request in a way that would elicit a yes, because, you know, the from from value comes actually being of value. You know, you and I barely know each other, but know each other very well. And we're of value to each other. You're always in an interaction looking for, Laura, what can I do for you? And I'm always looking for, what can I see for you? So when you approach, you know, that I'm giving a simple example of ego. Let's say you weren't valued just because you were. And by the way, you, then you miss that unconditional love chance, except for you to yourself, because only babies should be loved unconditionally. Otherwise, we, we cheat them. We want them to be of value, to find, mm -hmm. to find ways to, to be of worth in the world. And, and it's important to remember that studies have shown that purpose, the exercising of one's worth, 
predicts longevity better than smoking, food, exercise. The only thing that challenges its, that, that may even surpass its effectiveness is, is contact. Hmm. So, so true. No, it's so true. So, I mean, you see it, people who have purpose, regardless what it is. Yeah, they tend to stick around. <laughs> but we don't approach, you know, because we know our own needs and we undervalue what we have to offer, we don't approach life as an exchange. There's a nasty word. Oh, this is tra transactional. Guess what? Everything in life Everything's transactional. is a contract is transactional as well. It should be for adults. You know what? It, one should be of use and one should find and, and, and reject what is not of use. And even, even for example, um, charity is of use, you know, giving here, but it's of use. You are a person who you want to be. I have another quick story at the beginning of yeah, COVID. Please. And I may have told this one at the beginning of COVID, I sent out a newsletter and I basically, and, and my husband said, don't do it. You know, you're going to be overwhelmed. But I sent out a newsletter and I said, you know what? I'm still working. I'm setting aside a nice chunk of money. You all who have needs, you let me know. And my husband was really, this is so no boundaries. <laughs> this is such a bad idea. And I was overwhelmed. He was absolutely right. But he was wrong because I was overwhelmed. Everyone in my group, and again, it's a pretty large group, misread it. Not everyone. Some people made requests, very modest ones, by the way. You know, diapers. I can't find pampers. Um, right. I, I can't find eardrops. Um, I have nobody to deliver my medicine because I have COVID and the doorman at Queens Village or where, I forget where it was, won't let the delivery person, won't, won't, the delivery person wasn't allowed to go through and the doorman wouldn't bring it up and even leave it in front of a door with COVID. So one of our first responders said, oh, I'm around all the time. I'll bring it up. So, and, and had the credentials to do so. I was overwhelmed with people saying, oh yeah, you know, me too. I was lucky. I saved a lot or I'm retired. So my income is, you know, please let, where do I donate? I was offering money. I got overwhelmed with people saying, oh no, I can, I can, I can donate here. I can do this. I can do free legal. I can, I'm a therapist. I can do free coat, you know, unbelievable because people, especially, um, when things happen, people really want to, they're empowered by feeling that they have something uh, to give. And 9-11 as well. I live right by the World Trade Center. People were sharing, like these women who wouldn't have, who would have crossed to the other side of the street for some of the people who live on the street were sharing their water as I crossed the Manhattan Bridge. It was unbelievable. How do you suggest people use their intuition to find their purpose, because you were saying too, feeling of value is kind of, you know, what allows you to sustain. But so many people don't acknowledge that they have value, don't even realize they have value. So how do you recommend using kind of your intuitive powers to find your value? Well, first of all, I do want to address that, that, you know, we, we, here's some reality testing. 
we tend to live in a society of somebody's and nobody's. And there are no nobodies. I mean, you know, Agreed. I remember Demi Moore when she was a kid, you know, I mean, she was like three years younger. Why would I talk to a younger person? But she was perseverative and we made a friendship. And now, I mean, now Demi's the one who gets me into a restaurant, you know, right. um, you know, we, we, but it's, first of all, your job, not to, what makes somebody, somebody for you? Not to, not to swallow whole what the standard example of somebody and nobody is in the world, A. B, I wrote, but know that you're affected by those values. And so you need to protect your ego from them. Um, we often protect by working against, oh, you know, they're just superficial. When you work against, you're wasting your energy. Work for. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be with? What do you want to be appreciated for? Um, and so know that the, I wrote a book called The Circle, and The Circle really is the answer to how do I find my purpose while filling my desires, while growing into somebody I want to be? Because as I say to my students all the time, I have been so many people I would not want to sit down at a table with. I have been a lot of people I don't like. And the upside, though, the way that I don't carry shame or guilt um, is that I have been working my whole life to be somebody I do want to be, to be someone who mm, I admire. So beautiful. And, I, but, and we're all works in progress. I mean, I'll go to a party and I'll be feeling insecure and I'll do that name droppy show offy thing. And I'll think, oh my God, who are you? I mean, like, oh no. And I could fall into like shame and self-hatred and I don't say, oh gee, okay, honey, what are you insecure about? Okay. You know, and, and I cop to it very publicly because what we keep secret yep. what we repress has the capacity to harm us whereas where you just say oh wow i was a real idiot or don't say it but realize it and no you're a work in progress and and there was some distress that that you know that that made you reactive um, but the circle, what the circle does, and I've used the circle with mergers and acquisitions, you know, as a business process for companies. And I've used the circle with individuals in homeless shelters, um, you know, people who are, you know, post-divorce, have no idea who they are and have no money to be it, um, mostly women. Uh, but, um, but men too, you know, it, it is, the wonderful thing is that things are getting more equitable but mm -hmm. we're getting each other's problems too. Yes, um, of course, right. Right? Uh, you know, when, when gay marriage was, was first legal, and of course I celebrated it with everyone else who has two brains to rub together, um, I also called my lawyer friends and said, you know, you should specialize in gay divorce because three years from now that's coming up. Yeah. Um, but, um, but the circle, what the circle asks you to do is, first of all, and I won't go through the, the whole circle, but for intuition to work, it needs to know what it's working on. You get intuition all the time, but it's in a mishmash inside of you. So create a goal what, and not a goal like I'm going to be more organized. 
you know, a goal that you really want. I, I say the thing you wake up hungry for and you go to bed missing. What is your, mm. what is your goal? And allow that goal to be flexible. Don't change goals. Because one reason we don't get our goals is that we have a target. We, we know what we're going for and then something distracts us or we need something or something pops up. So we don't stay in a goal. Here you've picked one goal. And that goal is the context through which everything else in your life happens, that single goal. And that goal evolves. You don't change it, but it, it evolves. Um, and, and it's interesting. You know, one of my first goals in the circle was to be a full-time stay-at-home mother with my son. I had left my husband when I was pregnant. I didn't have, I couldn't travel anymore for work. I didn't, hadn't realized yet that I could do all my work by phone and still get paid. You know, it was different times. It was 1992. Um, and, um, and that was my goal in the circle. That's all I wanted. That goal, a few months later, got me one of the biggest advances paid for a first-time author. That goal created a New York Times bestseller. Um, that goal created the only publishing contracts in the industry that did not have a press clause. So I refused to promote the books. I wanted to be a full-time stay-at-home mother with my son and made a New York Times bestseller and then five more books. That goal did a whole bunch of other things in my life that weren't my goal. The only goal I had was to be a full-time stay-at-home mother. But through that, I became 31 years later, the adult that I am today. And so, you know, what is your, what is your deepest goal? And we get very superstitious. I tell people don't magicalize. You are the magic. So having a mm. goal to be appreciated and successful and rewarded doing what you love doesn't mean you don't love your kids. Doesn't mean you don't care about your husband or your wife or your partner. Right means that that is the context that's functional for you. You know, if I had made my goal being I'm a, I, I can make money to pay for my divorce and buy my home back and support my child. And if I had done that, I would have been all over the place. And I wouldn't have been able to do that because I, I had a new baby and my only desire was to be with that baby. So, and once you reach a goal, you make another goal. And once you have a goal, then you use mindfulness in a new way. You were going to say something, but remind me about no, 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 keep going. No, no, keep going, keep going. So once you have a goal, you start with mindfulness because mindfulness is not meditation. Mindfulness is being alive. Okay. Mindfulness is being in you. That's all mindfulness is. And it's really hard, which is why there's all this work around mindfulness is that it's, it's not easy being in you, being in me, is really hard. Um, you know, there's a lot of conflicts and challenges and histories and future worries and ailments and et cetera, and needs, you know, to pee, to eat, to change <laughs> position. I mean, there, it's a demanding thing being present. Um, but you start with mindfulness. And on, on Instagram, we start every uh, get together with being mindful and connecting in that mindfulness. So helping facilitating each other, um, which we just do through our breath. Just, you know, we are, we are suspending the illusion of separateness 
and we're realizing we can help each other. Not that you're separate when you think you're separate, but if you don't know a door can open, you won't open it. So we, right. we allow this help because we suspend the illusion that it is not there anyway. To your mindfulness, you allow, and I'm going to tell you why you don't fantasize or create, you allow the experience of what it is your goal is as if it had happened. You allow it. You don't look for it. You may not even notice it. What you may notice is that there's there are sensory shifts when you allow that are new to you. And that is you connecting with an alternate reality, an alternate future, reframing your past so that it's useful. Because if it's not useful, don't remember it. I mean, if it's not useful, it'll come up when it's useful. And and it shifts your telepathy in a way that you create real change. And that's just the first two elements of the circle, conscious creation and embodiment. And it is a way that we train our intuition to work for us and not against us. Because intuition can just as easily find out, find the next reason in the world that you can interpret that you're worthless and you can't do what you want. And by the way, when you're mindful, guess what comes up? Obstacles. When you embody, when you allow that new reality, guess what comes up? Obstacles. Guess what? Obstacles, when you're conscious of them, become tools. Oh, this is an obstacle. Let me do something about it. For me, an obstacle to being a full-time stay-at-home mother with my child at 33 was that I had no way of making a living. I had a very, I lived in an expensive city and I had a very expensive legal battle that was definitely going to happen. That I am, I did the circle. I was mindful and I embodied, I allowed, and I, in a play space while my, I don't know, seven month old was eating sand, a top New York agent sat down next to me and said, what are you writing? I said, you know what? I've gotten myself into a pickle. That was before I knew how to swear. I've gotten myself <laughs> into a pickle and I'm using a methodology that I was tested on and trained in to get myself out of it. And she said, oh, let me see. And I said, you couldn't even read my writing. Everyone in my family is a doctor and came up with every excuse why she couldn't see. And she was persistent. I let her see. And she said, you know, this is a book. And I said, no, it isn't. Of course, I'd always wanted to be a writer, even as a child. No, this is a book. Now she said, here's my card. Now this is before Google, mm -hmm. but she was well known enough that everyone I talked to about it said, that is a top New York agent. She knows what she's talking about. And very shortly thereafter, I had a big check. So talk about and in that scenario, you were embodying the idea of just being like, talk about the embodying and how it kind of. Not the idea. So you, although we tend to experience our thoughts in words, we experience our life through our five senses. And embodying is sensory. It's allowing, like I'm doing it as I'm speaking to you, as I'm here and connecting with you, because I wouldn't want to miss the deliciousness of connecting with you. Um, I'm also allowing the experience of what it is I'm, I have determined I will create, what I'm consciously creating. I'm allowing it. Now, I may not notice it because my primary focus is on our interaction, 
But I'm opening my sensory receptors to that. And as I do, there's a very complex process that happens. I connect with things in the future. I may be dialoguing telepathically, even with people I haven't met, but who are connected to what I need to have happen, which I don't know I need, but I know I need. I'm (laughs) reframing the past so it functions in terms of the present. And I'm having this conversation in a way that who knows, someone may hear it and help create that new reality. One of the one of the confusing things about doing that is that A, we're taught to communicate in words. And even with telepathy, you communicate experience, not words. Words get lost. Um, the other thing is that we're we are trained in positive visualization and fantasy. But the reality is you can only visualize or fantasize from a paradigm that you already have experienced. Whereas your present and even your future holds infinite possibilities. And to connect with those, fantasy doesn't help. That's, I mean, that's a really interesting point because I think that's, you know, what do you think of the idea of mood boards and when people do that? Is that limiting? What is a mood board? Yes, I figured. Like, you know, it's like people. I do love, I do love altars. So for example, I have altars all around my house. Everything in my house actually is an altar. And I clean those altars and I move things on those altars and I add special things to those altars because an altar is a physical representation of what you're creating. And sometimes I'll move things on an altar and then I'll look at it and I'll let the altar speak to me and say, oh, this is what you're creating. And I'll say, oops, didn't mean that. (laughs) Let me move, let me move that heart a little further away from that business piece. Or let me, you know, um, so I mean, ritual, I I have experienced that ritual has the power you give it. Every day we light the candle in back of me as a group. Mm And we give it the power to create a new reality for us, to create that communication in the world between us and world, us and events, to create a new reality. Does the candle have any power? Absolutely not, but we do. And when we join together, boy, oh boy, that's a super radio tower. You know, that is is an atomic uh, incident Um, because when people join moving it at a certain vibration, for lack of a uh, better word, a certain frequency, that is immensely powerful. So if a mood board can speak to you, or if you can externalize something, um, you know, take it out of your messy self and make it tangible and visible, that can be very useful especially if it's a consistent thing, because you don't want something. I know people do vision boards, but those are static. Yeah. So when you do a vision board, it's really important to keep doing them and to notice how they change, because that's how you're changing. And that will give your intuition, your intellect and your emotions some powerful information about how you can change more consistently and more consciously. So talking about using the candle as an example, which is basically going back to this idea, everything is intention, right? Everything, but talking your and, and action, 
but talk about this idea of the intention for the candle. Talk about the difference of intention versus mentally wanting something. Well, when you mentally want something, you may be wanting it from, I mean, first of all, we're, oh, that we were as simple as the mantras we make, right? When yeah. you want something, you want something perhaps with worry, you won't get it. You want something with your whole history of different obstacles. You want something not knowing all of your potential because you don't know who you're going to be a minute from now, let alone a year from now. I mean, you do know intuitively, but your patterns block a lot of that out. So, so wanting is an acknowledgement of lack, whereas, and it's good to acknowledge lack, which need to be realistic, but wanting is an acknowledgement of lack. It doesn't organize your resources and the resources around you in a direction that's just creating. So when I light that candle with my group, all of us are saying, yeah, we know our lack. Boy, do we know our lack. And yes, <laughs> we know a bunch of the obstacles. And yeah, we don't believe in this. And yeah, it's just a stupid candle and she's a weird psychic and blah, blah, blah. But in that moment, we are galvanizing together our intention that despite all of those other things, this is what we're doing now. This is the game plan. So no, tell me, don't. no, go ahead. No, you go Finish ahead. the thought. Cause I was about to switch. Cause I was going to say, tell me oh, earlier, yeah. you said earlier, you were talking about how um, you're like anyone in anything, you have a harder time with your own psychicness and intuition for yourself than anyone else. Right. Everyone else you can read. And by the way, again, listen to that episode 78. She has amazing stories. I mean, yes, you work for companies, but the stuff you have done and you've helped solve crimes and you can find, I mean, you're a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant psychic. Tell me just a funny story where the radar was not working for you. Oh my God. Um, every relationship I've ever had into <laughs> this man. So, so I in relationship always picked my parents and I was raised by a manic depressive mother who you oh. had to remind during manic episodes that clothing were not optional to walk out the door in our New yeah. York city apartment. Um, so I, I, and who I spent from birth trying to delight and charm and save. And she suicided two days after my 14th birthday. Oh, I know the story um, so tragic. So, so I, I was raised by her and I was raised by my father who is, a classic narcissist with a very heavy backhand um, who never tells you anything good about yourself. As a matter of fact, I am now responsible for his care. He's 92 years old. And his warmest compliment to me is, I'm so glad I didn't abort you. Um, <laughs> literally, he says that to me. He embraces me goodbye. And he is nothing if not grateful because I'm the only one left. I've had two siblings suicide. I'm the only one left to take care of him. But but he embraces me and he says, I'm so glad I didn't abort you. But you know what? Not a trigger for me anymore. Um, because now, you know, he's 92 and wobbly. I'm 64 and tough. I could abort him if I wanted to. But I don't right. because that's not who I choose to be. Um, so I'm sorry. I forgot the question. No, we're talking about your radar, like where it's failed you oh, sometimes. Okay. So, so relationships, I, you were saying. I picked people to save who were 
thoughtless with me. Those were the relationships that I was comfortable in because we love our parents. And yeah. even if we don't, even if as adults, we're too smart to love in the admiring sense, we love our parents. That's the first thing we know are our caretakers. They are the prototype. So I kept picking the same people over and over again. And actually, if someone was, you know, kind to me and functional and had a job and all those things, they weren't interesting to me. So after the end of the last, my last relationship, I decided that this was just not something I was going to heal in this lifetime. And I asked my two dearest girlfriends who had long-term marriages to wonderful partners to, to introduce me and to join us at dinner because I did not want to, the whole dating thing, I'd never really done it, didn't want to do it. Join us at dinner to men who, and I had a list, and it was a short list. I wanted nothing to do with the arts or Hollywood, age appropriate. <laughs> they had to have been married and divorced, good to their wives and good fathers. Um, and that was my, those were my criteria. I didn't care if they worked at a gas station. I mean, I, I really identified this. These are the important things for me. And, um, and those are the only men I dated. And I used discipline. If I went to a party and someone asked me out, I said, thank you so much. That's so kind. And I told the, the hostess, please tell him that I'm not dating. Um, if I liked someone, I left the party because I was worried about my own impulsiveness. I only wow. dated these men. And I, I remember the night I met my husband. And I walked in and my friends were there. I was the last to arrive. I called my friend after, and I actually emailed her. I had discovered email by that point. That was 12 years ago. <laughs> I emailed her. So nice, completely not my type. Please don't encourage him. She said, not your type. Maybe that's a good thing. And um, I had a three-date rule because I knew I wouldn't be attracted to anyone who didn't need saving and didn't have all the criteria yeah. my parents had. And it took me a while um, I mean, he loved his family. He had no real trauma. He was successful. He was employed. He had his own home. He'd raised children. He was a good father. He was a good ex-husband. There was no hook. I wasn't useful at all. And um, Useful. And he said to me one day, you know, I did the three dates, and he said, listen, I'm not going to stalk you, but I'm not going to go away unless you tell me to. And we've been married nine years together, 12. And he has, as relationships do, he has reformed my universe. And mm. I his, because I was exactly what he needed as well. Uh, so that is where intuition would literally, I mean, cloudy. Uh, it, well, not just cloudy, it took me Storms. directly <laughs> in the wrong, in, in the right direction, for my four-year-old self who couldn't leave home and mm. needed to learn to get along with these adults, but absolutely not for my adult self. How do you, do you communicate with your mom and now your siblings? I do. I try not to talk about it publicly because I always worry that my companies will be listening, but I do. And I've actually isolated them in a small part of my house because I would hear like an my altar sister for them or something. It's, it's more of a cage. I would hear my sister say, 
oh, my kid is doing this. You need to do this. And I'm like, you should have thought about that before you took a massive overdose because I actually have my own things to do. But then, of course, being as codependent as I am, I would do it anyway. So I've really made a rule that I inhabit myself once a day. I go and I sit in front of them and I hear and I talk, but I try to really set uh, boundaries, boundaries because, and you know, it's funny because I know a lot of mediums and good mediums will tell you not every dead person is saying I'm at peace. I'm happy. Some are saying, Hey, what? You couldn't wait two weeks to wear my favorite sweater. I mean, these are still relationships, <laughs> you know, and they, and they do need to be worked on. People often speak and don't listen to their non-local relationships, including with DPs, dead people. Um, and, you know, I, I have a really, I have a story that I love and that I think is an important story. I always saw the energy of people who had died, whether they're dead people or just a vibrate, you know, who knows. But, you know, I don't, I don't want to commit to a methodology, to a, to a belief system here. But I always, I, even when I was a little child, yep. and when my mother died, and I was madly in love with my mother. I di she died, you know, back then 14 wasn't adolescence yet. My mother was my love. And when she died, she was the only dead person I didn't see. And I was heartbroken. Mm, and I that's was interesting. furious. And I never had to do things to see dead people, like light candles or sit in a cell. Like I, all that frill was never, they would be there and they'd say, did you remember your book bag? And I go, oh no. And I'd go get my, I mean, it was a very functional, normal relationship with people who were dead. My mother, for my mother, I literally, I, I looked at everything like to, to, to conjure her, nothing, nada, zilch. And when I was 19 years old, I'll never remember, I'll never forget this. I was in back of a, a red mini Morris. I was in the the, I, we'd made the, the trunk into a sleeping area. And I was in some foreign con country, I don't remember which country. And, and all of a sudden I saw her and I burst into tears. Mm. And I realized in that moment that if I had seen her, I would have joined her. That, that mourning and, and being in life is so important before you work on a relationship with someone who is on another plane, because your job as a living being is to be a living being. And so mourning is such an important gift. Mourning is the acknowledgement of value. Mourning is the owning for self, the parts of that value that you need to move forward functionally in your life. And mourning is that vulnerable, you know, tender living place where you reconnect or connect for the first time with others in the world who, who that person who died taught you to love and connect with. So, so it's so important. I'm very against immediately trying to communicate. Um, you know, uh, th there are times where that's, that's an exception. You know, if you, if, if a child dies, you want as a parent to, God forbid, to facilitate that yeah. child more than you want to be healthy. Um, 
but that's a very it's a very tricky thing. By and large, it's important to bury, to observe mourning, and then when you're in that next life, to connect. And and you know um, that next life is when that that person that dead person is a functional part of your current reality. Has your relationship with them changed? Oh yeah, because I've changed and they've changed. You know, so so much. I was the oldest sister, and I was the you know devoted child to my mother. Um, one of the things I really realized is how much my mother's helped me in ways that I didn't identify as she in the you know when when they happened. Um, and my relationship with my siblings has changed an enormous amount because we're, we're growing just because someone dies, they don't stay static in time. Mm -hmm. And once again, this is my experience. I'm very, I'm very proof oriented. So what I have proof with, with dead people is that you can get from that energy, accurate things about them, what's going on now, you know, in murders, they can often give you important information you'd, you know, that you might not have another way of knowing. But it's also possible that you know that intuitively, and it's being framed in terms of this, of this person. Um, I, I, I have had the experience of dead people telling me something like where to find a watch that they hid in their parents' vacation home, that the only wow. purpose of it would have been that the person I'm speaking to needs to be reassured that they're actually speaking to that person. So I wonder why would that come out of the blue? The person wasn't looking for the watch. Like it's, you know, so, but I don't, right. I am, I am at heart a scientist. I know, I, know, I love that about you. <laughs> well, thank you. Some people don't, some people find it not spiritual enough, but I no, think, but I think that's what makes you so yeah. And that's what makes you so fascinating. I feel like is this interesting blend of like, you like proof, like you, I mean, you've said it a few times, you like proof, you like the data points, yet you are someone who's psychic. And like you said, has helped solve murders, helps companies with predictions, has helped people. I mean, it's, I love it, but you're but like, nope, there needs to be. That. Yeah. That when you get a license plate number or where bodies bury, that, that that's proof. When you predict you, the future and the future comes up, that's proof. This other you know, how we can do that, uh, we postulatize. Postulate, I lost that I get word. It. It's a postulate. It works. You know, how <laughs> it works, I have a, a experience of how it works, I could be wrong. That it does work is irrefutable because my companies keep track. I mean, back in the yes, old days, before, before computers, they had books. And they would review them of my prediction. And believe me, more than tell me I was right, they say, oh, you were off here. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not God, you know? <laughs> but, um, Do you think that's why you it, like working with companies and police departments? Do you feel like that's why you tend to enjoy well, doing that more than? I don't anymore because police departments don't pay and I only really only did missing children um, because adults often want not to be found. And a lot of it's none of my business. Um, That's interesting but, um, too. But I like working. I, really the reason I like working with companies 
is that, yes, I know when I'm right or wrong and they're not going to humor me. It's not subjective. You know, when you say something to someone, it's what they remember, how they documented it. It, it, it can be very subjective. So it's reassuring to me that I'm psychic and not psychotic. But the other reason that I'm very cautious with people is that I might be the only voice and people hmm. believe so easily. Um, I'm not a therapist. I'm not right. a physician. I'm not a financial manager. You know, I'm not qualified to do a lot of the things that people come to an intuitive to have done that could be better done. But I, I used to love when people would come in and say, you know, do I have HIV? And I'd say, you know, there's a really accurate, not that I would get an answer, but I wouldn't give it. There's a really accurate test you can take. And then with the test, you're in a place where if it's a yes, they can say, and here's the treatment, let's start you today. You know, so I think I really- What do you think that's about? Do you think someone comes in with that question because even though you can give them the answer, it's in their mind, it's not tangibly a reality yet and they can like get their head wrapped around it? Well, yes. And I think people want reassurance. You know, it's like people saying, am I going to fall in love? That's not an intuitive question. If you want to fall in love, the question is, how do I find my partner in the next six months? And then I might say, you know, I don't see six months because I sense that this is going on and you're going to be making an unexpected geographic move and blah, blah, blah. But because often the response to a question isn't a direct response to the question itself. And, um, but, but, um, but really the best use of intuition isn't prediction. You use prediction to work back and see where someone can do something different, but that's really not how people use prediction. And also people use prediction to substitute, to like find some magic way to substitute something that they could do better using another, you know, someone qualified. So for example, if I know someone is in therapy, because I have a lot of students and I read all of my students, I'm a compulsive reader, I love reading, it's the way I say hello. Um, <laughs> and some of them love that, some of them some find it don't. a little interesting. But, um, <laughs> but you know, if I know a student is in therapy, I will say to them, and I always start with a person, not so much with businesses, but with a person I start, this is one intuitive impression. I could be wrong. But I'll say, for example, I have a feeling you're making a lot of big decisions around your marriage. And um, I think that you need uh, to speak to your therapist um, and a, you know what, I'm going to use a real example. Uh, I have a friend who doesn't realize that she's absolutely headed for a divorce with someone who knows their rights. Oh, and yeah. when she asks me, what I say is you don't need a psychic, you need a lawyer, and you need to check the following things because I know intuitively where the weak points are, but yep. not to work it through with me to bring it to a lawyer. And Has then as a it? friend, I try to find who the, is the most kick-ass lawyer who's not going to charge an arm and a leg. 
I mean, I have a referral list that's incredible. So, so when someone comes to me and say, do I have breast cancer? I have an oncologist, you know, or, or an imaging place that I can send them to and say, this is a far more realistic answer. Yeah, that's got to be kind of a, a burden on some of those, not a burden, but like that's tough when people want some of these answers, like you said, that they're just scared to receive in a different way. But, you know, it's, we all do that all the time. Yeah. My husband, who has refused to read, has finally become a good reader, and I incessantly ask him questions. Um, I mean, it's true. You ask that of your doctor, your financial advisor. Your th Do you think this will work out? You ask your therapist. True. You ask your friend. I mean, at least as a psychic, you're getting paid for it. But I really train my students to be very careful because often someone's afraid of a relationship, for example, and they're asking for reassurance. So, and then they use that reassurance to not go out and, and make the changes and do the things that would give them a much healthier relationship than just waiting for a prediction happen would. Predictions do tend to happen if the intuitive is good. And I really think if you're going to a, an intuitive, get a referral from the toughest, most grounded person you know, not the person who has crystal balls all around there. <laughs> um, and, and by the way, the other thing is, you know, I've had a lot of challenges in my life, but I've always, and a lot of them I've created for myself. You know, I'm the best at picking a wall I know and walking right into it, <laughs> but I've always ended up in a better position. And I would have, you know, it's like looking for a plastic surgeon. You don't want a plastic surgeon who looks crappy. Nope. You know, um, with an intuitive, is is their life working? Do they have love? Do they, if they want it, do they have enough money? Is there, is their career one that's interesting? You know, because if you can't use your tools for yourself, I wonder how skilled you are at using them at all. I mean, that's, I think, a huge point. That's huge and great. I love talking to you always. You're such a shining light and so just a joy and and hilarious. That's one of my favorite things about you is how funny you are. Um, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing. When you come out with your book, we have to have you back on so we can chat about that. it. Thank yeah. you. And you, you are also, you're a barn raiser. You know, you create a place for people to get together, to support each other and to build. And it's one of the things I've always loved about you. So thank you for having me in your barn. Oh, I love it. You're invited to the barn whenever you want. Um, everyone stay tuned for her personal practice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so now it's time for Laura's personal practice, which is a meditation to find your own wisdom and personal power. So Meditation is an interesting word because we use it often as a way of leaving self. This meditation is an active meditation. It is how you grasp your power, how you inhabit self, and then how you engage intuition to create something more. So the first thing I'd like you to do, and no deep breathing, no putting your thumb and forefinger together, I want you fully present. The first thing I want you to do is be fully present. And no one can do this 100%. But what are you tasting, smelling, hearing, feeling, and seeing? Look around you. Wiggle your tushy in the chair. Taste the inside of your mouth. Be in you. What's bothering you right now? 
what's lovely, even if it's just the, the, the light from a lamp in front of you. So be very present, wiggle your fingers, your toes, be in you. How are you? Mindfulness is the sensory response to how are you, where are you, and who are you? And I can already feel you all thinking sensory response, feeling, tasting, hearing, seeing. I missed one of those, but I'm sure you'll get it. And of course, breathe, because breathe is necessary for life, but your focus is on your being and not on your breathing. You'll notice, I'm sure many of you, that when you do this, your experience isn't light. Uh, it's complicated. It's, it is elegant and inelegant at the same time. It's painful and reassuring at the same time. Allow yourself to experience all of it because as you experience it, what happens is you do an automatic sorting. You have an awareness of what you want to address, how you want to move when this moment with me is over, what you need to take care of, what can take care of you that you are not availing yourself of. So as you just practice being present, eyes open, fully present, I'd like you to take a moment to suspend the illusion of separateness. Whether it's psychics or physicists, one thing we are in agreement with now, and don't forget your mindfulness as I'm speaking, one thing we are in agreement with now is that we live in a unified field. And what that means practically is what you experience is experienced infinitely by others. So as your experience shifts, as you are mindful, and in that mindfulness, if you're in a position that doesn't fit, make yourself more comfortable. If you need to move your neck, do it. If you need to pop in a mint because your mouth doesn't taste good, you go right ahead. Mindfulness is not static. It's constantly moving. But in that mindfulness is also an awareness that you are not doing this alone that actually when you're mindful, as issues come up, others are engaged in them. And as you notice your strength and your beauty, others are engaged in that as well. And as you're mindful, I would like you to notice one thing that you want right now more than anything else in the world. Don't think it, it will be in your gut, it'll be in your heart, it'll be in your belly. What are you crying out for? If you could have a call and the world would respond, what would that call be? Make it now and make it into a sentence. Call now, assume that sentence will be responded to. Call now, whether it's your backer or your lover or <clears throat> a feeling of joy, whatever it is, call it in now. What is the one thing you need now more than you need anything else in the world? And once again, we call through our senses. Don't imagine it. You can only imagine from what you know. Don't visualize it. Visualization is just one sense. 
Open your receptors as if they were doors. Open your receptors to a response to that call, that one thing, that one event, a response from one person that you want more than you want anything else right now. And that is called embodiment. You add your embodiment to your mindfulness. So your mindfulness is not just an awareness of this moment, but your mindfulness is also a connection to what it is you are creating now. Again, let's take a moment to suspend the illusion of separateness. And even if you believe you're separate, one of my favorite quotes is, the good scientist suspends disbelief and runs the experiment anyway. So do that now and notice throughout the next few days, the synchronicities, the meaningful coincidences that seem to come up from thin air in yourself and in your life and in your relationships that affirm that this process has worked for you, that you indeed can work for you. Thank you for listening. Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O.